In our satsang of tonight, we are going to continue with the reading from the precepts for spiritual seekers, the so-called yoga of the disciple, from the Tibetan yoga. This was the 28th general category of advice, which was given to the people who became disciples in yoga, in the lineages of Tibetan yoga. I will not go through all the 28 chapters. Some of them are metaphysical. I will take them in the order of the importance. Last week when I started the first of these chapters, called the 10 causes of regret, I already managed to go through five of those, commenting the understanding which was given in Tibetan yoga and generally in yoga to those. As I said last time as well, the yoga of the disciple, the 28 categories of precepts for the spiritual seekers, they are first of all impressive through the spiritual aspiration, like there is no compromise, it's sharp, it's clear. They are also impressive through their extraordinary discrimination, the extraordinary clarity, the systematic approach to spirituality, but again, more than everything, perhaps, through this feeling of aspiration. What do you need to do to put, to bring to full value, to full extent of one's aspiration? Thus, the first chapter is called The Ten Causes of Regret. And we already have gone through half of that. The number six of the so-called causes of regret reads as follows. Religious faith and the firm determination being the virtues which can lead one to emancipation, which is another word for enlightening or spiritual realization, it would be a cause of regret were they to be shattered by the force of uncontrolled passions. Religious faith and the firm determination being the virtues which can lead one to emancipation. So, what makes one capable to reach emancipation? The Tibetans in their spiritual environment, they called it the religious faith and the firm determination. Some people would say, what's the story with the religious faith? Yoga is not a religious science. It's not a religious discipline. However, do not forget that the Tibetan yogis were living in Tibet and they were immersed in a Buddhist culture. They were Buddhists. There are people today, even in the scholarly environment, who claim, who state that Buddhism is actually not a religion because it has some very peculiar aspects in itself. But of course, the general classification is that Buddhism is one of the world religions. That's why when translating the concept into English by Ivan Wenz, who was the first scholar who translated these things, he preferred to call it religious faith. We could call it simply the spiritual belief. Like, first of all, 
many people do not realize that there exists a spiritual evolution, a destiny of the soul, and that there is a finality of the human evolution. Otherwise said, some people do not see the light in the end of the tunnel. Otherwise said, some people do not believe in their own salvation. People that do not have a spiritual outlook of life, they live hopelessly. There is no hope. All you can hope is just to live your life with lots of pleasure and lots of fun. And when you die to say, I have had as much fun as I could, I sucked the marrow out of life as much as I could, and that's about everything a human being can do. Religious faith here, especially in the context of a Buddhist culture, where many people would even doubt its religious character, religious faith here basically means the belief in the spiritual aspects of life. And that does not need to be necessarily a religious thing, but it is used by an ancient Oxford scholar, W.Y. Ewans Wenz. It is used because that would be a word which would fit to the English language readers from the 1920s or 30s. They would compare it to the religious faith which was still strong in Europe in those days. So he meant to give an understanding, not to explain it exactly. What is a religious faith for a Buddhist? For a primitive Buddhist, religious faith is that you go to a Buddha altar and you light a candle and some incense sticks and you pray for good luck and blessing. And for a more metaphysical student of Buddhism, religious faith would mean to believe that there is nirvana and to believe that if Buddha reached nirvana and showed the path, you could also, at least theoretically, reach nirvana in this very lifetime if you practice the path, if you make the same efforts. But that is not really a religious faith. That is to, to say, Buddha has shown the path, I can try to do what Buddha did, I believe that the way of Buddha is good, it is taking me in a good place. And that is why it's not really a religious faith, as we'd call it in European languages. It is more the fact that in the moment when a human being loses their hope in liberation, in a moment when a human being loses their hope that there is a continuity of consciousness and the possibility for the human being to get emancipated, then such a human being will not practice virtues, such a human being will not practice self-control, such a human being will not practice meditation, and therefore, for such a human being, everything, all hope, seems to be dead in this way. That is why the first thing which one needs to practice spirituality is to have a hope, an expectation. Because if you don't even think that yoga is possible, then why practice yoga at all? It becomes a waste of time. Somebody who sits in meditation for a person with no hope is a fool wasting his or her time because nothing valuable can come out of that meditation. Ah, 
the fact that you can produce a bit more alpha waves in your brain or the fact that you can calm down a little bit and eliminate some stress, some people would say, I can drink a bit of wine and maybe it will do the same thing to me. I can have sex and maybe it will do the same to me. I can, I don't know, sleep and maybe it will do the same to me. And that is why, of course, the first determining factor is that first of all people believe that the spiritual practice can yield some result because otherwise there is no reason to do it. This is what is meant here by religious faith. Of course in Buddhism they would integrate it in Buddhism, in Christianity they would integrate it in Christianity and so on and so forth. Religious faith and firm determination. If you have faith, but you lack determination, you are like a person who says, yeah, there is paradise. Yeah, there are saints that made it to it, but I am a weakling. I cannot refrain from my beefsteaks. I cannot sit up straight in meditation. I cannot do this. I cannot do that. And therefore, I cannot really go deeper. This is also a virtue which is necessary. One needs, first of all, religious faith, let's call it that way, because, first of all, one needs to be motivated. But then, on the second level, one needs also a firm determination. If you have a firm determination without a religious faith, then you become a tough guy. You become a tough person. A person with a firm determination, but with no religious faith, will put that firm determination in acquiring name, fame, wealth, taking revenge, doing a hundred and other things with very firm determination, but that person will never put this strong willpower in the service of any spiritual goal, because for that person there is no spiritual goal, because everything which is spiritual looks like being without any meaning and useless. That's why we need a combination of those two factors. First of all, you need to have this intuition in your heart that you can get somewhere. And then you need a firm determination, a willpower, a self-discipline that you should not become a dreamer and a weakling. You should actually be able to do something. There are so many people with faith, but no determination, no willpower, to enact it, to really make something out of it. So, says then this aphorism, religious faith and firm determination being the virtues which can lead one to emancipation. That's what you need. You need the proper belief, which is again, not a religious belief, it's a belief in Buddhism especially, it's a belief in the efficiency of a path, which others have crossed before you, Therefore, it must work. And a firm determination, like act. Make your dreams fact. Don't just dream without any power. Just dream, dream in a weak way about some fanta fantasy of spirituality. Act on it. These two being the virtues... It would be a cause of regret were they to be shattered by the force of uncontrolled passions. Your belief 
in the possibility of you to succeed, to reach immortality, to reach self-knowledge. Again, some spiritualities use very bombastic and big names, and sometimes people are scared about the big names used in spirituality. But sometimes some spiritualities are common sense. Like yogis don't speak so much about God and things because they say it can be looked upon as a personal thing, as a transpersonal thing, as an impersonal thing. What we talk about in yoga is about self-realization. Who am I? Why am I here? That's the question which I'm trying to answer in a very practical, in a pragmatical way. And then this desire, this belief that I can answer that question. This question is valid and it can be answered. There are many people who can ask, what is the matrix? Like the famous cult movie by now about it. But many people ask, what is the matrix three times? And then they fall asleep and they get lost in the things of the daily life. Which means some people really ask the question, what is the nature of reality? Who am I? What is happening? Why do I live here? Why do I exist? Therefore, these virtues, the religious faith and the firm determination, they can be shattered, which simply says, if you are clear in your mind, you look upon yourself, you look upon life, you simply say, who am I? What am I doing in this world? What about my parents? What about my siblings? What about my acquaintances and friends? What about the whole world? Why are we here? Who discovered this? What is the meaning of life? Can I live through tomorrow if I don't understand any meaning in this life? Maybe I'm not anything but just a horrible accident and I'm supposed to go through the soap opera of this life and have sometimes laughter, sometimes tears, and the whole thing is not leading to anything. The whole thing is just a disappointment. And even if I have children, my children are not going to really make anything or make any difference because nothing makes any difference. And my children are going to go through the same meat grinder like I did. And eventually they are going to have their children. And the whole caboodle is going on and on and on. Nobody ever reaches to anything, accomplishes to everything, doesn't make any difference. Just a horrible accident. Some DNA was created on this planet and a million years from now a comet will smash into the planet Earth and then we are going to be back to step one or something. Like why then go through all this? Why hope, oh my God, I'm going to have a career. Oh my God, I'm going to discover this and that in science. Oh my God, I'm going to paint an incredible painting or compose an incredible music. And then a million years, nobody's going to ever know or care about it because it makes absolutely no difference. There is nobody to witness it. There is no permanent consciousness. And because of this, there is no meaning whatsoever. Therefore, this belief in the fact that there is a meaning is a result of discrimination. It is a result of clarity. I'm looking at the way people die. That's why it's such a lesson to see people die. It's such a lesson to assist 
people that are dying, when Buddha saw sick, old, dying people, he got a total revelation because he immediately saw where the whole thing is going for him and for the rest of the world. And therefore, when a person that has clarity looks at the whole situation, the, this person that has clarity realizes there must be some meaning, we must look for some meaning, even if I cannot feel clearly that there is some meaning, it's still worth it that I can look a little bit for it, because if I find it, I gain everything, and if I don't find it and there is none, I didn't lose anything. You cannot go worse than nothing. You cannot go worse than darkness. You cannot go worse than chaos. But if there is a chance that there may be, then I stand to gain everything. And therefore, what I'm telling here is, this is a parallel, what I told you now, it's a simplified parallel to the famous bet of Pascal. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal, he even demonstrated rationally that the belief in a spiritual goal is better than not to believe. Because if there is nothing and you believe, okay, you just lull yourself in a sort of illusion and eventually you are going to go to the tohu vabohu, to the outer darkness, to the chaos where there is nothing. What did you lose? At least you lived with a pleasant dream that there might be something. And if you wouldn't have had that dream, you would have been more cynical, more depressed, more, and in the end you would have reached to the same outer darkness and chaos. Therefore, if there is nothing, you stand to lose nothing. But if there is a spiritual reality, if you didn't believe and follow it, then you go into the outer darkness, and it's a bummer. And if there is something, you might achieve it, and then you have gained everything. Therefore, you never stand to lose more than the nothingness, which might be there, but you have a chance to achieve everything. That's why Blaise Pascal said, actually, if you think like a person that bets in a casino, your best chance is to hope and to believe in something spiritual, because you at least have a chance to win the jackpot. And if there is nothing, you haven't lost much anyway, because there was nothing to start with, and you are not standing to get any better outcome from it. This bet of Pascal, which makes a lot of sense, is driving atheists today insane. And they are trying to twist it and to give different mathematical values to the thing, but it doesn't really hold. They just make fools of themselves. Pascal was a real meditator, and he came with this thing. And thus, this, there exists a clarity. People like Buddha, they saw life, they entered into a clarity, and then they simply said, what is to be done? What should everyone do? How should I live my life? And then they went into spirituality. And this creates both their religious faith, which again, we in yoga don't interpret as religious. I'm using that name because it's used in the text. But I mean by it a spiritual conviction that you are convinced inside yourself 
that there is a spiritual outcome to things and that makes it worth it a try and then the firm determination. I can have that, like, yeah, yeah, the whole life is in the hands of God. You hear so many bigotic, bigotic religious people, fanatic religious people, talking all day long about God and other things, and then not doing anything more than just some very primitive stuff, not really acting for a spiritual betterment, for a spiritual evolution of the human being. And Tibetan yoga says these two virtues, they are with you when you are clear. But in the moment when you are disturbed, disturbed by sexual desire, disturbed by greed, disturbed by passions of all kinds, you forget at least one of them can be shattered. Like, I do have religious belief, but I'm incapable to have any determination because I live in a society where religion requires celibacy. Like if you would have been born in Europe in the 15th century where the only spirituality was the Christian church, it was that or being burned at stake. There was nothing else. And then if you wanted to choose spirituality in the 15th century in Europe, you were compelled to choose celibacy because there was no tantric form of Christianity being practiced in the monasteries of Europe. And therefore, if you would say, oh, I believe in God, but I'm not able to hold my sexual passion, I am too much passionate of sex, and therefore I cannot really go and pray as I somehow, somewhere know that I ought to but it's too much, I can't give up my sexual pleasure. Then your passions, as the Tibetan yoga says, shattered by the force of uncontrolled passions. Then the force, there are passions which go over a certain red line and then they become uncontrolled passions. They control you. Those passions can be a million things. I am sitting here and I want to practice loving kindness, compassion and love your neighbor as thyself and all that stuff. And then somebody offends me deadly, kills my family, does something and all I can do is become vengeful. All I can do is think of revenge. And somebody tells me, think, neither Jesus nor Buddha said that revenge is worth anything. Both of them said that if you want to take revenge, you should rather forgive. You should refrain from it. It's the road to hell. It's not really the thing to do. And you say, I know, but revenge is too sweet. I am so mad to see some blood, to see some revenge, that right now I feel the heck with Jesus, the heck with Buddha. I can't hold my hand. This is an uncontrolled passion for sex, for revenge, for falafels, for whatever your passion is, it can become an uncontrolled passion in which you yourself consciously, you say, the heck with spiritual life, the heck with my immortal self, the heck with my hope for salvation. I'm not going to, no, I can't do anything. This is the way it goes. The 
Every human being has passions. But for some human beings, those passions are going beyond a limit and they wipe out your brain. In the Roman legal system of justice, which is still practiced partly or totally in some jurisprudence, in some systems of justice from the modern world, many are based on the Roman set of laws, which was the first major European set of laws. In the Roman system of justice, the crimes of passion, such as, for example, killing someone on whom you are jealous, they are punished with 50% of the same punishment if it would be done out of passion. If you kill a person, you get 20 years in prison. If you kill them because you are madly jealous, you get 10. They found mitigating circumstances in the fact that, in the fact that you were jealous. You were jealous was considered by the Roman justice system that it obliterates your reason. It wipes out your reason and it makes people do things which normally they wouldn't do. And other things, that's why not only jealousy, that's why they are called crimes of passion. The French have said it in a more poetic and in a more bon vivant way, in when they said, in love as in war, everything goes. That means when you are in love, you might do something terrible to get the man or the woman that you love, because people who are in love, they go a bit crazy. Everything goes. It's like in war. A lot of crimes are done in war, like Albert Einstein said. War is the worst crime perpetrated by man against man. Because in war... People can say everything, but you look, even in the 21st century, with the war in Iraq and others, people who are coming from a so-called civilized country with democracy and so on, they perform acts of bestiality once they are unleashed. It, there are no holes barred. There is no more reason. In war, the sense of decency disappears, and people break lots of rules, and pray that you will never be part of a war in your lives, because then you will see, ask people who have been part of real wars, and you are going to see it's much, much worse than people make it sound, precisely because some limits are always broken. Some limits are infringed upon constantly. This is a crime of passion. In, the, in love as in war, everything goes. Of course, Buddha would not say so. Buddha would say when people are in love, they actually have emotions from Svadhisthana because most people fall in love from Muladhara, from Svadhisthana, from Manipura, not from the heart chakra, and therefore they become engrossed in some terribly powerful passions and in the name of those passions, they would break many rules of decency. Either their passions are negative or positive, that makes no difference. That is what we are talking about, uncontrolled passions. Today, under the guise of psychology, which is the new religion, it has been said by a great philosopher, in the 20th century, religion was replaced with psychology. 
Like people don't go to the priest anymore, they go to the psychologist. The funny thing is that, of course, psychology is a materialistic and generally majoritarily atheistic science, and it doesn't give any divinity perspective to the human being. And instead of solving things through grace, people try to solve things through the human being. You don't need God. Human beings are good enough. In case you don't know, this so-called humanistic philosophy, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the devil, I believe in man, like Jean-Paul Sartre was putting it in the mouth of his character, this is called Luciferianism. It's a form of demonism in which people think God is not necessary, the human being can do everything. It's a lack of humility, it's a lack of surrender, it's an arrogance, a vanity, a pride, in which the human being refuses to surrender, thinking that they can be the masters of whatever they want, whenever they want. While that may sound encouraging and empowering, it is actually a lousy spiritual idea, which produces many of the pains and traumas of the modern time, where the society preaches a false type of humanism, where there is no more religion. You can see it even in things which are apparently magic, like, for example, in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. In the Lord of the Rings, there is no religion. There is only people, bad people, good people. There is not a mention for a second of God that the good people fighting the dark Lord of Mordor, they prayed to God to give them providential help. That's not there. It's just people who solve everything. The little people from the Middle Kingdom, with the people from there, with some elven, with some wizards, just people. In the language of metaphysics, this is called Luciferianism, that you promote yourself, that God is not important, there is no need for grace, there is nothing transcendent which comes from beyond, it's all just this and nothing else. And what I was saying, therefore, here, is that there are uncontrolled passions. Socrates said, every time when I see a human being, and Socrates was not a very mystical person, although he was spiritual indeed, Socrates said, every time when I look at human beings on the street, I see every man accompanied by a pig, which, of course, means the animal nature and the uncontrolled passions. And Socrates said, alas, most of the time I see the pig riding on the back of the man, not the man riding on the back of the pig. Which simply says, Socrates said, most of my fellow men are ruled by their passions. They are ruled by their animal nature. They live their lives so that they can satisfy their inferior nature they are not capable to live their lives sacrificing their inferior nature, at least from time to time, controlling it, subduing it, trying to live in the name of a higher ideal or of a higher goal. These are the uncontrolled passions. I was saying when you will look, I was speaking about the 20th century where religion was replaced by psychology, and by humanism in a very discreet and I would say in a very diabolic way. 
if you will look uh, under the guise of this psychology, people are being told, and that is like the devil whispering, people are told that you are too much in control. You are trying to control too much. Let go. That is unfortunately understood in the New Age subculture and others just as a license to unleash uncontrolled passions. That simply says, well, I couldn't help it. I had to do it. Like somebody wants to say something which will hurt someone else really badly. Example, a woman wants to tell to her boyfriend who burned her off on a date or something like this. After all, you are not good at all. You have a pathetically small dick and in bed you are a catastrophe. Fuck you. That statement can ruin a man for the rest of his life, psychologically. Especially if it is a bit true. <laughs> Therefore, no woman should make such a statement without considering the amount of karma which will come to her from harming somebody. That, I said that specially because if you tell to a woman, you can say, right, women are very sensitive, and a man tells her you are having no boobs and no man would pay a buck to, if you were a whore to take you in bed and something like this. No, you can practice these games and people are cruel and they practice these games all the time. And they think that if they don't do physical violence, it's okay to snap verbally. But there are people who say, who say, I would have preferred you to hit me in the face rather than having told me those words. Because those words can traumatize a human being for life, creating a belief in the incapacity, ugliness, dysfunction, and everything of that human being. I'm not saying that you should be soothsayers and tell lies. Speak the opposite just for the sake of pampering other people and feeding their egos. But there is always an elegant way of avoiding, of using the nonviolent communication, of using the heart, love, and other things for improving one's discourse. And what I'm trying to say here is, under the excuse of psychology, People will not refrain from saying such horrendous things. And if people say, you should have shut up, you know, you don't really say such things. And people say, but I felt like, would you have wanted me to refrain? I would have exploded if I wouldn't have spoken my heart out. After all, do you want me to be fake? Do you want me to be false? Okay, you have not been false and you have hurt someone grievously. I hope you are satisfied. I hope your heart feels really satisfied that you spoke your heart out and the price for it is someone suffering for years, perhaps emotionally or psychologically. Anybody who will take a Hollywood movie made before the 1950s or any other movie made in this world will see that people were behaving there is no uncontrolled passion extolled in any movie before the early 1960s. On the contrary, every time when a man, a woman snaps 
under one form or another, either physical violence, verbal violence, emotional chaos, whatever it is, it is always presented by the filmmakers in the movie like a blame. Like that's not the way you should be. That's the bad character. That's the bad guy in the movie who does that. And it's always given like a lesson. After the age of psychology coming up and replacing religion, suddenly it's okay. You can't see uh, an episode from Dr. House or some series in the television or others where somebody doesn't snap uglily and does things and after all it's okay. People trying to desperately go in the surgery room and the doctors and the security having to restrain them. And you never find such a scene in the movies from the 1950s, 40s, even early 60s. There isn't. I'm not talking about historical movies where you talk about Robin Hood and Henrik V. I'm talking about movies illustrating the daily life of the epoch. Therefore, think a lot about these uncontrolled passions. It is a sign of Kali Yuga. It is also a method through which either the conspiracy people or the demons, depending on who you want to believe, they have destroyed humanity. Humanity is destroyed by giving it more and more free access to sin, to vice, to drunkenness, to uncontrolled passions. There were religions 300 years ago which said, people, behave. Your immortal soul, remember? You want to go to hell? You want to go to paradise? No, like, behave a little bit. Today, psychologists have almost come to the point of saying that that's the religion that was controlling people. But actually, this was not applied only by the religious people to make people shut up or behave. It was applied in other completely different fields of life, and it had nothing to do with the control over the religious institution over anything else. Therefore, it is an excuse given, and it is a weakness of people's mind and soul. It is a weakness of the astral body and of the mental body. People become more and more yin in their manomaya kosha and in their viganamaya kosha. They are incapable to hold the direction. And when, for example, you start doing yoga and you say, I have to do two hours of yoga every day because that's my spiritual aspiration, people say you are fanatic. I think you and that agama thing is just a cult and a sect because look, you behave like a fanatic person. When you have determination, people say you are fanatic. But people who are going and accompanying Manchester United from one city to another and participating to every single football match and getting drunk every single time and doing hooliganic actions and screaming their brains off, those are not fanatics. Those are just football fans. It's fun, people. If somebody does the same efforts for yoga, he or she is a fanatic. Uncontrolled passions. Humanity today is much, much more down the drain and much, much more the victim of uncontrolled passions. And it is cultivated all the time. 
This is one of the weaknesses of the consumer society. You have to consume, consume, consume. The newest flat screen TV, the newest computer, the newest refrigerator, the newest this, fashion, of course, all of it, constantly, it is whipping you. And you could simply say, no, I'm not part of that. Then you are a fanatic, then you are Amish, then you are living out of the world or something like this, simply because you don't let go, because you don't surrender to the momentum of those things. But actually some people may believe that those things are useless, diluted, unimportant. It's not that they have something religious against it. There are people who simply don't want to participate because they feel like they are being polluted mentally. It's like something gets into my mind. I start dreaming about those things even in the night. They get into my subconscious mind. They go into my astral body. They go into my mental body. My astral body and my mental body are like sponges. They are penetrated constantly by advertising, propaganda, and a lot of other things. And then I am subjected to the uncontrolled passions. This is a very important statement because uncontrolled passions destroy your belief in your salvation. They destroy the belief that there is nirvana. Like at some point you want to take revenge on somebody and then you have an electric potential in your mind. This is my hope for nirvana and this is the desire to smash the guy's the bastard's head. And then I'm thinking and I'm saying smash him. No, nirvana. Smash him. No, nirvana. And then my brain has to choose. And when the emotion is too strong, it says, after all, probably there even isn't any nirvana, which is the green light for do the other thing. Like the uncontrolled passions, to be able to exert their control, they have to destroy these two things. The firm determination and the religious faith, or otherwise said, your spiritual vision, your spiritual conviction. It is very important to look at yourselves and to become aware, when am I subjected? If you are humble enough, you will see it in the past. When in the last 10 years have I been weak, swept over by uncontrolled passion, and as such, I have made compromises on my firm determination and on my spiritual vision. Because that's where it goes. Uncontrolled passions, they are, for the Buddhists, they are Mara. They are the, the image of the inner demon of every human being. On one hand, you have the spiritual belief and the determination to see it through. And on the other hand, you have uncontrolled passions. Be aware because the modern society is pushing people very badly into this. And when you look at backward society, such as rural India, where many yogis are still living, such as other countries, such as Burma, Bhutan, places where there are many monks and people do meditation, 
in those cultures, not because of the Roman Catholic Church or any other crazy thing like that, people are still not having too many uncontrolled emotions. And when people have uncontrolled emotions, fingers are pointed at it and said, behave. Uncontrolled emotions are not an excuse for doing all sorts of abominable things, as people say. Very often I have met people who said, well, I had that emotion and I had to do that. It's not correct. It is not, this is not the spirit of spirituality. This is simply letting go to a wave of something, which is usually a form of possession. You are yin, your astral body and mental body are taken over. And then there are people who in a moment of madness, they take a, ba a bottle or a baseball bat, they hit, they kill, and then 10 seconds later, their consciousness comes back. And somebody says, my God, what have you done? And then you say, I don't know. I don't know what came upon me. Uncontrolled passion. You can even kill somebody in an uncontrolled passion, and you are not even aware that you did it. Try to see interviews with people that did various things, either being drunk or under the influence of drugs or others, and they would say that very often they didn't realize what they did. But everybody knows that people, like in the shamanism, it's a common statement that people that take drugs, as well as people that drink massive amounts of alcohol, and even people that smoke nicotine, they are possessed by entities. When Carlos Castaneda, in his first book, gets to know Don Juan, Don Juan tells him clearly, when you take this cactus, you get possessed by a spirit called Mescalito. And if Mescalito is nice to you, you are going to have a good trip and see some stuff. And if Mescalito is somehow pissed off at you, you are going to have a hell of a night ahead of you, and you will pray every minute that it should be over. It's a well-known thing. Either you smoke marijuana, or you eat cacti, psychedelic cacti, or you drink alcohol, or even the nicotine, cocaine, heroin, everything, is in the language of shamanism, is always being considered a possession. There are people in the school that constantly tempt others with doing ayahuasca trips. You should be aware that in the Santo Daime Christian Ayahuasca Church of Brazil, when you are under the influence of that psychodynamic substance, in Portuguese people say, eu soy pegado. And pegado means possessed. That means it is an acknowledgement even in the Santo Daime, which is not so much shamanic, that actually you are possessed. And the hope of the fools is that you are possessed by somebody nice, kind, and compassionate. Do you think if it would be so easy to get possessed by Milarepa or by Shambhala, wouldn't they have done it already? I mean, those people are supposed to have an enormous compassion and a desire to help humanity. 
So they could simply say, oh, let's take some of these yogis and for three hours possess them a little bit so that they can have a taste of nirvana. We can give them a little bit of this or that. The very laws of nature say a very simple thing. The lower the spirits, the more easy it is to get possessed by them because they have an interest with you. They want to possess you because they get something from you. So any one of you who has the foolish belief that the mescalito or the spirits of ayahuasca are some holy spirits, you are in for a big surprise. And you can see it that if the people who possessed themselves regularly by those would have been possessed by holy spirits, their whole civilization and they themselves would have become holy. Actually, the North American, Central American, and South American civilization, before any intrusion of the Europeans into it, was very, very, very far from being holy or nice or ecological or anything like this. It was cruel, bloody, human sacrifices were being practiced on a huge scale, and many, 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 many other things were there. Any tree shall be known by its fruits. In India, you had people writing the Vedas and the Upanishads, and in Tibet, you had people writing this. People that allowed themselves possessed by spirits of nature, they never produced anything comparable to 25% of this in a spiritual way. That is why it is important for people to wake up because shamanism is a path which has a value, but shamanism is not a path that leads to nirvana. It never did. And therefore, please be aware of the fact that when we speak about the force of uncontrolled passions, people that are very yin astrally and mentally, they go under all sorts of influence, and that, that influence is not positive, it is not controllable, it's very, very difficult for you to go and say, oh, Archangel Michael, take over me, possess me, control me. That would be nice, to be possessed by the archangels. That's very, 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 very difficult because the archangels don't deign to come down to your level and possess you because you have to deserve to be possessed. It's a karmic thing after all. Thus, this thing with the force of uncontrolled passions has many, many dimensions in yoga. And remember, that's why the yogis perhaps would seem to you in their philosophy a bit old-fashioned. The yogis don't wish to let go, except to Buddha, Shambhala, Archangel Michael, God himself, Shiva, that's okay. But to let, just let go to different other things, that's not where they want to go. That's why the yogis value more this human society before the 1960s, where people were trying to behave, not just to let go and unleash everything whenever, all the time. I know that some people call that patriarchal, old-fashioned, Nazi, right-wing, and something like that. 
simply because people love to have the freedom to let go and do whatever they want whenever they want, that can't be the path to enlightenment after all. The next statement says, the perfect wisdom having been found within oneself by virtue of the Guru's grace, it would be a cause of regret to waste it amidst the jungle of worldliness. The perfect wisdom having been found within oneself by virtue of the Guru's grace. This talks about a person that had a period of revelation. A person who practiced a little bit. A person who reached a certain level of epiphany. A person who had some bit of a revelation. Tibetan yoga says, well, that was obtained by the grace of a guru. It is a, it is a typical statement in Tibetan yoga, which lays lots of emphasis on the function of the guru. Of course, not everybody was in the presence of a guru. But actually, when we look at the number of people that reached wisdom in the 20th century without the direct assistance of a guru, we find that the number of are abysmally small. And therefore, if five people in a century reach some wisdom without a guru, there are more people who won the Super Bowl or the National Lottery in your country in that century. Therefore, the chance to reach it without help is way smaller than to win the national lottery. And it's not something which any intelligent person would take into account as a possibility. It's more like if it happens, then it's a gift from the gods, and then it's fine. But otherwise, I should not really rely on that. What you rely then, you rely on the help in spirituality, in Kali Yuga. Most people had a teacher a guide, a confessor, an elder, somebody that taught them the craft and brought them into spirituality, guided their first steps lovingly into spirituality. So the perfect wisdom having been found within oneself by virtue of the Guru's grace, it is sometimes a grace. It's very difficult for many of you to understand this factor of grace. And for people that have a very strong ego and this Luciferian vanity and arrogance, it sounds like kowtowing and having to... Actually, when Ramakrishna gave his grace, he wished he was not there present. He wished to disappear so he would not hear the people's thanks or anything. It doesn't really produce any pleasure to a man like Swami Shivananda, that if he exerted some grace and some of his disciples in his presence reached something, then when they say, oh, thank you, Shivananda, you made my day, that Shivananda should puff up his chest and say, yeah, am I not cool? You will never have any real spiritual teacher going into this direction. It's actually very embarrassing and most spiritual people immediately consecrate and they say, no, my son, all glory be to God. You know, it is God, it is Shiva, it is Allah, it is some... They would not want any, anyhow to keep such a glory, such a varnish, such a gold polish because of a natural humility, because of a natural selflessness. 
So it is indeed Tibetan yoga doesn't care about pluses or minus. As I told you, they are just accurate, sharp, discriminative, and they simply speak out what is what they say it. So yes, it is by virtue of the Guru's grace. That's exactly what Abhinava Gupta, those of you who will do Kashmiri Shaivism will get to hear that. Abhinava Gupta, the greatest, arguably the greatest tantric guru of all Indian history, simply says, when I pleased my guru, he gave me the initiation leading to immortality. It sounds so very biased. It sounds so much like kissing ass, doesn't it? Especially when you have a big ego and you are arrogant. It's like, why did Abhinava Gupta had to please the guru? What if the guru is a fucking asshole? You know, it's like, no, it's like, no, this is unacceptable. And yet Abhinava Gupta, who is himself considered the only Shiva avatar in the history of India, which means a big thing because India has a long, rich history in spirituality, and Abhinava Gupta says, when I pleased my guru. He doesn't say how. But of course the understanding is when I did the right spiritual efforts, my guru simply bestowed a sort of grace. Therefore, this factor of the guru's grace is there, but the gurus generally don't like to speak about it. For example, Abhinava Gupta doesn't say, and when I also am going to be pleased, I shall also give it to someone else. That he doesn't mention. He always looks up at his guru, at the same time not putting himself up anywhere, because he lives in the same condition of reverence, of humbleness, of spiritual virtue. So the perfect wisdom, having been found within oneself by virtue of the guru's grace, definitely where there is a guru, there will be some contribution from that part. So having been found, like somebody who had an insight, somebody who had an epiphany, somebody who one night cried his or her heart out and said, I want to live my life right. I don't want to waste this wonderful life. I would like to make a difference. Somebody who had a moment of opening and all the Buddhas of the past, present and future would say, bless you. May God hold you, you know. May that realization hold. May you not forget what you have seen tonight in your mind, in your heart. Because it's very easy to forget. We can relapse. Just a flower doesn't make spring. The fact that we had a 30-minute spiritual experience doesn't mean that we have become spiritual already. And Tibetan yoga says the perfect wisdom being found by the grace of the Guru's grace, it would be a cause of regret, the number seven cause of regret, to waste it amidst the jungle of worldliness. That you take it, you've had a bit of a spiritual epiphany, and then you take it in the jungle of worldliness. In the wonderful movie of Franco Zeffirelli about the life of Francis of Assisi, Francis of Assisi being a fanatic Christian mystic, 
he goes to obtain some audience, some approval from the Pope of the time, and being just an uneducated fanatic, with dirty feet and walking barefoot and dressed in rags and preaching poverty and extreme renunciation, eventually he finds nothing better to do that in front of the Pope and the Cardinals and the Archbishops and whoever was there, he starts preaching poverty and everything, which of course was a slap in the face in the Vatican among gold and jewels and the Sistine Chapel, which were, had not been painted at that time, but anyway, it was the buildings were there and the environment was already there. And everybody gets horrified like this guy is basically rubbing our noses in the muck, showing us how virtuous and poor he is. And it's like we are spoiled people living in plenty and we have robes made of silk and brocard and this and that. And his great luck is that the Pope used to be, at least in his spirituality, maybe even then, still a man of spirituality. And the Pope goes into a shock, and when he recovers, he goes to Francis of Assisi, and he bows down and kisses his feet, which everybody is flabbergasted. And the Pope says, my younger brother, when I also started on the spiritual path many years ago, I felt exactly like you. And your enthusiasm, your energy, has reminded me for a second from where I left and look where I am. He said, understand us, because we live here in plenty and in a place of power, and your very appearance in the middle of us puts us to shame. Like we all of us realize that maybe we should have done what you do, but... We lost ourselves in the jungle of worldliness. We simply thought that that moment where we felt our soul and we felt we wanted to do something, oh, then maybe if I become an archbishop, I will be able to help the world because I'll have so much power, so much influence, like mixing this with worldliness, trying to find worldly way of doing things. See, even Tibetan yoga, which does not pertain to Christian fanaticism, like in the case of Francis of Assisi, points at the same thing. There are people who are having an opening towards spirituality. It happened to even many Westerners in the 60s, where they were like the Beatles and others. They would study with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi or God knows whom, with uh, Baba Ramdas or with whoever, with Nimkaroli Baba, I meant. Ramdas studied with Nimkaroli Baba. And then 20 years later, you'll find them millionaires and yuppies. They were not in that revelation anymore. Some, luckily or unluckily, died in a more idealistic state, a la John Lennon. Some became billionaires and lived the life, a la Paul McCartney. You know? So there is a sort of, there is a revelation, and it is how pure you keep that revelation, and how much you can act on it, how much you can work on it, how much you can keep the flame alive, what are you doing about it. This in itself is not an injunction from me or from Tibetan yoga that you should not do things in the world, 
or that you should cultivate poverty and renunciation. In a tantric school we never say that because the world is Shakti and you can propitiate Shakti and you can use this world as a trampoline towards the higher consciousness. But that means still that you don't have to forget why you are here. Even if you dress in silk and drive a Rolls Royce, the important thing is still to remember who you are and what you are doing, and then that's not what matters. But the unfortunate outcome is that the people get lost in the jungle of worldliness. You lose it to waste it amidst the jungle of worldliness. Worldliness is compared by Tibetan yogis to a jungle. Is it possible to live in that jungle and go through it? Yes. For example, Buddha Gautama, after his enlightenment, he spent another 40 years in the middle of worldliness. Of course, he was withdrawn in his own way and he cultivated the Sangha and he created the Buddhism itself, but he still was moving in the world, meeting with people, holding discourses. He often was mocked. He was opposed. There was a king who got so furious at his popularity that apparently tried to murder him a couple of times and Buddha escaped miraculously from those challenges. Therefore, it's not that Buddha lose, lost it in the jungle of worldliness, but many people can do. It's exactly like somebody gives you a torch with a flame, a candle, and you go out and outside there is the storm. Are you skillful enough to keep the flame burning in the storm? Then you are like Buddha. If your flame dies in the middle of that storm, it means you should have better stayed in a sheltered place. Many people say, Agama is like a bubble. What about the world out there? We have advanced yogis from Agama who go in the world out there and they teach and they are spiritually centered because they have learned how to keep the flame alive even in the storm. But while you are not strong enough to do that, it is just a naive foolishness to try to subject yourself to that before you can master the skill of holding the flame alive. That is why it is not a shame that some people come back to Agama to make their flame stronger because they know one day I will be a holder of the flame. One day the flame will be burning clearly in my heart and then nothing and nobody can take it away. Then I stand on my own feet from the standpoint of aspiration and spirituality. The number eight cause of regret continues to sell like so much merchandise the sublime doctrine of the sages would be a cause of regret. Like many people would say, Swami, are you not selling yoga? Maybe you should do the yoga courses for free or on a donation basis because like this if you perceive a tax it sounds like you are lucky enough to get some esoteric knowledge from some remarkable gurus. Lucky you there are maybe not other people who caught sublime doctrines like the Kaula Tantra or Kashmiri Shaivism or other such things. 
and lucky you that you got it. You have no competition because others were not so lucky to get that. And now you hold a sort of monopoly and you can basically crank the price up as much as you want because aren't you selling the sublime doctrine of the sages? This is where you can evaluate very clearly. Is Agama Yoga worth money? For example, are you paying for Agama Yoga? No, you are not paying. In the minds of people that you do this, you are not paying for yoga. We cannot sell you even the knowledge of Udhyana Bandha and what it does to the human being. Even the knowledge of the morning kriyas and what they are useful for, we can't sell it to you. That thing you get for free because it is invaluable. If you have a cancer in the stomach and first they will do chemotherapy and you'll lose your hair, you'll lose your bone mass, you'll experience nausea and horrible states in your body, you'll be poisoned severely and then your cancer is not gone and then you experience after three months or six months the second course of chemotherapy and again you feel even worse and you lose a few teeth in your mouth and you live like a state of daily shit and it still doesn't work and then they put radiation on you because you have a tumor in your stomach and that tumor burns many other tissues in its way and it destroys many other vital organs and it produces, it's like a very invasive therapy and still it's not over, which of course it's not over for 90% of the people because only 3% of the people survive 10 years after they've been diagnosed with cancer. And then you choose to go to surgery and the doctors cut a major chunk of your stomach and you have a stomach as big as this after that and you have to eat every two hours and only a little bit and you have pain from surgery and scars and you have been irradiated and you have been poisoned and your body is reduced to a wreck of what it was and the cancer comes back because you had a metastasis and it's all over and it spreads again to your stomach and this time to your lungs and to the ganglia in your spine and eventually even the morphine doesn't work on you anymore and you gnash your teeth and scream and the last 15 days before you kick the bucket are a living nightmare for you and for those dear to you. And if somebody comes and teaches you that Oshava diet and Vamana Dauti and Udhyana Banda can stop this, what do you think somebody should pay for that? What's the price of the alternative? That, that's one option. That's the option of the medical solution and it approximately will take you the way which I have outlined. You will live a few more years, but those few years are just an agony which is unworthy. Many people would say, let's visit Dr. Kevorkian and get it over with because that's not worthy enduring. So, if somebody can give you that no surgery, no chemotherapy, no none of those and you can be healthy in five years and continue your life what's the price of that can anybody pay me any money for that even if you sell everything you have and give it to me you can't pay for it you still owe me that's why we don't sell yoga 
yoga and the path to salvation is invaluable. Nobody can sell it ever. It's a complete stupidity. What people pay for is that people pay for the economical, administrative, and material conditions to make it possible because you have electricity and you have a hall under you and you are so many that a new hall has to be built and it goes just like that and people are paying for their karma. Ask any healer of value and you are going to see that people very often need to put some money because they need to compensate for some karma. As the, as the Thais use the expression, people need to make some merit. People need to gain some merit. There are people, there are studies in the effects of medicine and people have noticed that if the same medication is given to two patients and one of them pays double as much than the other patient, the medicine becomes more effective just because you paid twice as much for it. Because when you pay twice as much, you relieve some negative karma. You earn some rights with it. You are making merit through that. It helps you to relieve yourself because the money, it is an energy, but it is not always a clean energy. And relieving it is like taking some pus out of a wound sometimes. People in psychology, they can tell you. Take Freud's book of book interpretation. Every time when you dream shit, you are going to make some money. In people's dreams, Freud noticed, it's not my statement, every time when you dream shit, feces, excrements, it is about money. In people's subconscious mind, money is associated with excrements. That's the energy which exists in money. Your third eye reads it in a funny way. That is why, please realize that indeed you can never sell spirituality. Anybody that tries to sell spirituality, like I have got a special form of breathing and if you just give me $2,000, I'll teach it to you. I have a special mantra and for only $3,000 you can have it. That is selling, trying, pretending to sell spirituality. For example, the great wise that was Gurdjieff, who came for a, from a very special environment, he always charged people a lot for his technology. And he said people thought that Gurdjieff was kind of crooked. People thought that Gurdjieff was a bit cruel, not that holy, because he was also charging serious money. And Gurdjieff demonstrated, he held a fantastic discourse, which is called the financial matter, which is posted in the end as an annex to his famous book, Meetings with Remarkable Men, read it, in which Gurdjieff demonstrated that it's nothing about him making money or anything like this, because Gurdjieff was broke. He was all the time buying things for the school and for the people. He demonstrated very clearly to a point where the people who were in the discourse of Gurdjieff, many of his pupils, they started crying when they heard the whole story. People started weeping on that discourse of Gurdjieff. You know? And Gurdjieff showed to them, 
this is not about me, it's not about the knowledge, this is about you. You need to put this value into what you do, otherwise you won't get it done. Great teachers in NLP and others, like Anthony Robbins and others, they charge thousands of dollars for a weekend. And it's not because necessarily they have to offer something better than yoga, because they don't really. Some of their methods are extremely efficient, and I don't want to deny that, but all in all, in the big picture, yoga is a system which has been tested for thousands of years and withstood the test of time, and it delivers the goods. And when these people are asked why, you know, they simply say, I have people who 10 years later told me that was the best investment which I did in my life because it was so effing expensive that it forced me to make a terrible effort and due to that effort I motivated myself completely and I simply said this cannot pass like this because if I let this pass I'm going to shoot myself. I'm not going to, I spent so much money this better work. So people forced themselves to succeed because they paid the money for it. Money is an energy. Money gives you access to a karma. Many people tell me, Swami, why do you keep the courses so available and so cheap? Because nobody teaches what Agama teaches. People want to go and do gymnastics and they would pay, I, I even forgot, they would go and make yoga with Pratabi Joyce or some other somity of the gymnastic yoga and they would pay scandalous amounts of money for the great honor to be with that t-shirt man in the same room. And actually, what was it from a spiritual standpoint? And thus, realize it's not about selling as a merchandise the knowledge. The knowledge is invaluable. Nobody can pay anything for it. That's why the gurus, what did people pay to Milarepa when they became the disciples of Milarepa? What did people pay to Ramakrishna when they became the disciples of Ramakrishna? Ramakrishna said, if you don't have money, give me your soul. Give me the most valuable thing. Pay with the most valuable thing. Even money cannot create any equivalence for that. That's why Abhinavagupta says, when I pleased my master, he gave me that. Your master wants your soul. That's why... The merchant, the, subli the sublime doctrine cannot be sold. Exactly as your soul has no price, the esoteric knowledge comes from God. How much you can pay for a baptism? But the ba a Christian baptism. But the Christian baptism is said to, maybe some of you are not Christian or not at all believers. Let's put it then as a hypothesis. The Christian baptism is supposed to come directly from Jesus. Jesus with his own mouth instructs the apostles and says, go and baptize all the people of the world in my name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and preach the gospel which I gave to you. And he says, take Holy Spirit, I'm giving you the power for that. Can you pay for a baptism? The baptism is coming for 2,000 years from one person to the next, from Jesus, who had it for God, from God. What's the price of a baptism? 
what would you pay to get baptized? There is no price for baptism. Therefore, if there is, if there is any correctness in religion, you never pay for baptism. You pay for the fact that the priest is a human being living in the society and he has to put some bread and butter for himself and his family. You pay for the building and for other administrative things which make this thing possible. But you don't pay for the baptism. There is no money in this world to pay for baptizing one person. If, again I'm saying, if the baptism is true. Indeed, maybe you believe that the baptism is just a hoax. But if it is true, if it is what it is supposed to be, then you cannot pay. There is not money in this whole world to pay for the salvation of one soul. That is why, be aware, the sublime doctrine, things which come from the divine, they cannot be paid, they cannot be sold. I would always, like, if somebody comes and catches me at the corner of the building and says, Swami, my mother is suffering with cancer and she said she would do yoga, what to do? You think I would tell, well, bring her to the courses, let her pay 4,000 baht, and then I will teach her Vamana Dauti and uh, uh, Udiana Banda and something? That's not for sale. I will tell it to anybody at any point in any circumstance for helping a human being in agony and for helping a human soul to come out of its darkness. That's not for sale. Here we are not selling yoga. It's all the rest. It's the mats. It's the handouts, it's the electricity, it's a lot of other stuff. It's the work permits of the people that work here and a lot of other things which require that, not yoga. Yoga is free of charge and it should always be. To sell like so much merchandise the sublime doctrine of the sages would be a cause of regret. Why? Because that comes from the transcendent, that comes from nirvana. That comes from God, that comes from the gods, that comes from beyond, and it's not my property. Yoga is not my property. I am preciously entrusted with yoga. I and the teachers of this school, we are the stewards of yoga. We preserve it like the Holy Grail. It is a treasure entrusted to us, which we pass to everybody who needs and we pass it to the next generation. And again, yoga cannot be paid for. Nine. Inasmuch as all beings are or have been our kindly parents, it would be a cause of regret to have aversion for and thus disown or abandon any of them. All beings are or have been our kindly parents. Because if you have had 5,000 lifetimes until now, which Buddhists think it's the average, Buddha got enlightened after 10,000 lifetimes. So 5,000 would be average. Again, we cannot verify that. There is no way to ascertain that mathematically. It's just a, a measure. If you have lived in this world for 5,000 lifetimes, you have had 5,000 mothers and 5,000 fathers until now, with whom you spent all your childhood and teenagers who loved you or didn't love you, who were nice to you or sexually abused you 
or beat you up, depends on your karma and relationship. But nevertheless, there are at least 5,000 men and women that have been your parents. Given the fact that the karmic connections tend to bring us together, because if I have a karma with you, you have a karma with me, and then we are born together again and again in clusters so as to satisfy each other's karma, then perhaps we have some repeats. Maybe in 5,000 lifetimes, we had some of them repeating, every one of them repeating five times. That simply says, that still says, that every one of you may have had until now 1,000 mothers, 1,000 fathers. You don't even know 2,000 people right now. I have met thousands of people because I am in the position where I am. But most of you do not have 2,000 acquaintances among the people in your life. The group of people that one knows is 20, 30, 100, not more than that. Therefore, if you had probably 2,000 mothers and fathers, they are even more than the group of all the people that you know in all your friends, schoolmates from the, your youth and university and whatever. Acquaintances still don't rise to that number, which simply says some of them are probably in the bardo right now. Some of them are in the astral world awaiting for their next rebirth. And that is why the probability is, simply because there is no randomity, the probability according to the Buddhist and Hindu way of thinking, you don't need to believe this, this is a hypothesis according to the Buddhist and Hindu way, don't, try, don't think I'm trying to indoctrinate you with reincarnation, it's just the way they think in Asia. Among the 100 or 300 people that you have crossed ways with in your life, chances are that because they are karmic relationships, most of them are some of your parents from your previous lives. Therefore, why have aversion? Why disown them? Why hate anybody? This is one of the Buddhist logical ways for cultivating loving kindness and compassion. They simply say, look with kindliness and compassion to everybody around you, because there is a high chance that those people were, if not your parents, then your siblings, your brothers, your sisters, your good friends, your lovers, your children in one of those lives. Try to think, they are not only parents, they are children, they are lovers, there are so many other persons that are really close to us and to whom we give our hearts. Those people, the vast probability is that they create the bulk of the people that you have ever encountered in your life until today and in the years to come. Therefore, treat them kindly. Maybe you forgot about them. Maybe they forgot about you. But once upon a time, there was love between you. There was care. There was kindliness. Don't throw it down the river, replacing it now with some ugly things. Don't waste it. Don't spit in the place where you ate long time ago. Don't denigrate something which you loved. The fact that you forgot the fact that that person might not be kind to you right now 
it's due to forgetfulness, it's due to karma, it's due to what Krishna calls the gunas. The gunas act upon the gunas. What can one do? The world changes. The world is, the, the wheel is spinning. What was yesterday up is now down. But this does not change the big picture and the nature of reality. This is an intellectual approach to love thy neighbor, while Jesus preaches it organically from the heart and says, love thy neighbor, Buddha explains it. That's why the Buddhist love is more from Ajna than from Anahata. That's why the concept of loving kindness in Buddhism and in Asia is not so much a concept which comes from Anahata Chakra because the Asians are not very good at Anahata Chakra. The Asians are good at Manipura Ajna. There is sharpness, there is logics, there is reason, there is a Socratic deduction. And then you realize, everybody in my life is probably fathers, mothers, siblings, daughters and sons, lovers from my previous lives. We might be at odds momentarily, presently, but it has not always been like that. And exactly as you may have had a beautiful love relationship with somebody, and one day that relationship turns sour, and out of dignity and out of love, you refuse to participate in anything ugly, and you say, let us not argue. Let us not spit upon each other after we loved each other for ten years. Let us not degrade something which once was beautiful. For the sake of what was beautiful, let's keep it at least to the level of some noble feelings. We are superior human beings. We don't need to go there. Exactly in the same way, by the same feeling, the story is valid about all the people you know in your life. Some people will say, isn't it possible that somebody is completely new in my life? This life is the first time when we ever met? Yes, it is possible. But how would you recognize who's who? How would you make the difference? Do you have such a big third eye to be able to, to have the clairvoyance to see through things? You don't. And since you don't have that capacity, then it's much better to act preventively. To simply say... It is possible that everybody in my environment, yes, even spiritual friends, you believe it's a coincidence that you are with somebody in the same yoga group and you do yoga in the same room and you share spiritual aspiration and you talk to each other and you support each other. That's, of course, ignorance. as never a coincidence in what yoga group you are, in what spiritual school you are, in what spiritual circle you are, because you are sharing a karma with other people. When you are all of you doing Oshava diet together, when you are all of you doing Nauli Kriya at 36 degrees centigrade together, it's not a coincidence that you are sharing the ups and downs, the lights and the darknesses of everything. That is why this is love from Ajna Chakra. This is compassion and loving kindness with a bit of Manipura to it. It's a benign Manipura. It's a generous, kingly Manipura plus Ajna 
much ajna, which brings the light of the spirit, which brings discrimination, and which brings this noble idea. Exactly like people who think big, and they say we are part of an even bigger system. Not only this group, not only my friends and my acquaintances and my siblings, but the whole humanity. We are on this planet together. We breathe the same air. We drink the same water. We are in the same ecosystem with the animals and the plants in this planet. There is something common. We have to respect the nature. We have to stop killing animals. We have to stop polluting the nature. We have to be much more harmonious because we are part of oneness. That's also a form of love which is coming from Ajna. We call it compassion, we call it loving-kindness, because it's an intellectualization of love. It is love mixed with wisdom. It is love mixed with vision. It is love mixed with a great mind, with a pure mind. So inasmuch as all beings are or have been our kindly parents, it would be a cause of regret to have aversion for and thus disown or abandon any of them. It doesn't say hate them. It says to have aversion for, to disown, to abandon any of them. Like there is hope all the time. Jesus, when he wants to speak about people who are severely in mistake, he puts it in another way. He said, for God does not wish the death of the sinner, but the redemption. Like if the sinner dies, he will have to be born in the next life, perhaps, and start all over, and then maybe he again will be unrepentant and do the same thing. The sinner now has a chance to stop, apologize, shed tears of repentance, and change his ways. That's the outcome of evolution. Jesus says that's what God wants. Buddha would not say God. Buddha would say that is what Dharma is. That is what spirituality is. That's the order of the universe. That's the law of righteousness in this universe. That people evolve. If somebody dies, the problem is not solved. The problem is just postponed till next time. But if somebody mends their ways, then there is hope then something great has just happened when somebody mends their ways. Thus, not to disown them, not to abandon them, to be there in some way. There is a chance for the unrepentant sinner to repent one day, to mend their ways. This is a very, very beautiful idea and the last one, I'm keeping you a bit longer because we started later, but I would like to finish at least this paragraph. The number 10, the last of the 10 causes of regret is the prime of youth being the period of development of the body, speech, and expression, and mind. It would be a cause of regret to waste it living in ignorance and indifference. Lahiri Mahasaya, the guru of the guru of Yogananda, had said it even in a more frightening way. He said, if you don't look for God in the spring of your life, he will not come to you in the winter.
which simply says you have to do the spiritual quest as long as there is still ojas in your body. Because when you have no ojas left in your body, you cannot even love God properly because you have no more intensity. You have no more bhavana. You have no more inner strength. Your meditation, you want to wait until you reach total senility and you are halfway through Alzheimer's and you want to meditate. What meditation can you do then? Postponing spirituality too much is not a good option because spirituality needs that you give something good. You give, you give a good part. You need to put good fuel into it. So spirituality needs to be done as, as long as the human being still has vitality. So what do we do in yoga? Well, the first part of yoga is then about giving to people back some youthfulness, some vitality, some health. That's why the yogis simply say, we have to rebuild you so that when you do your meditation, you do it with intensity. You do it with this having some of this intensity. Otherwise, it's very difficult because, as I said in the lecture on Jivatman in this school, it is like you are investing something. And if you are investing people who start investing $100 since the age of 20, and they put it in a compounding account, they can have a million dollars till they are 54. But what if you start saving money when you are 54? Then you might not make that million dollar till the day of your retirement, because you started a bit late. Therefore, it's always a great advantage to have some spirituality as long as you are healthy and in a good condition, when you can move your body, where you can still laugh, where you can eat, where you can be vital, where you can do hatha yoga, where you can have some of this energy. And if you cannot, hatha yoga precisely because of this has the methods to restore them partly. Not only miraculous urban legends from yoga claim that some people who are 80 years of age, they re-became like 20. I haven't seen it happening, and I'll wait until I'll see it to tell to you authoritatively that I have seen it, and therefore I know it's possible. I have read about it, I've heard the countless legends of yoga, and but again, not having seen it, I would say don't rely on it because I've been in yoga for 30 years and I haven't seen it yet. Maybe it's hiding somewhere behind the corner, but I haven't seen it. Thus, it is always very important that yoga is built in such a way as to rebuild as much as possible of one's youthfulness so that you can have this buoyant power to do some spiritual practice with a certain amount of enthusiasm. A measure of this energy, when you, have when you have vitality in Muladhara Chakra, and when you have vitality of the soul in Anahata Chakra, in Hrid Chakra, a measure of it is enthusiasm. Either you have the Muladharistic enthusiasm of a puppy, 
poppies are a typical example of what muladhara energy is. Those of you that have a big muladhara, sometimes you behave like poppies. And it's adorable, believe me. That poppy energy is fantastic and God loves it. And then there is a more subtle vitality, which is in your heart. And when you have that vitality of the soul, then you are still able to go into awe and wonder. You are still able to be enthusiastic. You are still able to dream and you are still able to love. And when you have any of those or both, this shows that not everything is lost. You can still do it. It's still there. Hammer the iron while it's hot. This is very important. It can sound cruel. And for those of you that are not in your 20s anymore, of course it rings an alarm signal which simply says manage your resources wisely because you are running maybe on some lower resources. Miracles are always possible and again as long as you can do, nothing is lost. Things are still there, but you should not postpone it too much because postponing it too much might simply mean too late. In the lives of the 84 Mahasiddhas, who are the authors of the Indo-Tibetan mystical tradition, especially the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, <clears throat> there is a story of one of those 84 Mahasiddhas, I forgot his name, who when he started his spiritual practice, he was always touched by senility and dementia. And somehow, miraculously, he managed to find such a huge perseverance, and he did pranayama and other practices, and somehow, miraculously, regenerated himself, and he even became an enlightened being. That's one of the urban legends of yoga. It's beautiful that it is there. I haven't seen it happen. I can still be surprised, and that's why we always tell to people, do not postpone until you are 80. When you are 80, you might not have the momentum to do things. Great masters, when they are put in the presence of people who are rather close to the end of their lives, they had to practice emergency measures. They had to practice sudden forms of yoga, sudden forms of enlightenment, risky methods and others, simply because there was no more time and no means had to be spared. They would go crazy, but simply because their hand was forced into like, you know, it's now or never, let's give it everything. Generally, spiritual teachers prefer to deal with their pupils in a way in which they have some time. Give some time to your spiritual practice so it can build up beautifully. Yes, you can build a house in 24 hours, but it will be most probably low quality and having some flaws during, due to the haste. It's much better to build a house in one month or two and to have it erected properly and it at all the standards. That's the same with spirituality. Give yourself some time for practicing spirituality. And Tibetan yoga, in its sharp, uncompromising way, 
it may give you a needle through the heart, but still the Tibetan yogis speak their minds out. The prime of youth being the period of development of the body, speech, and mind, it would be a cause of regret to waste it living in ignorance and indifference. They don't say about practicing a lot, but to waste it living in ignorance and indifference. Indifference, the oppose of enthusiasm, the power of the soul, and ignorance, which according to Buddha is the ultimate poison. The root of all suffering, says Buddha, is ignorance. To get rid of pain, you have to cultivate the authentic knowledge, the knowledge of the spiritual reality, of the spiritual truth. This is the spirit of Tibetan yoga, sharp, direct, with an aspiration which is powerful, with motivation, with both religious belief and firm determination. Listening to their ideas, you can understand what kind of people were those who wrote such lines. Let us remain for a few moments in silence to absorb some of the spirit of those teachings after a couple of minutes of introspection, of contemplation, we will stop and part for tonight. And that will do for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining the satsang. I'll meet you in the next satsangs.